Thank you for downloading this podcast from Talk Radio 702 and 567 Cape Talk. For more podcasts and more information on your number one news and talk station, please visit 702.co.za or capetalk.co.za. Stand up against indifference. Say hello to a stranger. It starts with you, leadsa.co.za. The Naked Scientist on Talk Radio 702 and 567 Cape Talk with Reedy Clubby. All right, I'm sorry to Temba once again. We'll make a plan, and I've got a lot of SMSs about democracy, transparency, and openness. We'll read those after the 10 o'clock news. But right now, let's say good morning to Chris. Hi there. Ready, hello. Lovely to chat to you again. Chris, my question, my first question to you is about Thomas. I know you like Thomas and have a lot of affection for him, <laughs> but he's, he, last week he brought cake to the studio for breakfast. That's yep. what he had for breakfast. And right now he's eating Malva pudding. For breakfast Please tell him why this is not a good way to start the day I don't know It sounds like a thoroughly agreeable day I knew you'd do that I knew it I knew it I can see Thomas smirking in my mind's eye now (laughs) Um, Actually we have cake of the week On the Naked Scientist Because my wife is a fantastic cook So to keep the team happy I take in stodgy numbers On a Sunday evening When we record (laughs) our BBC programme And the stodgier the better actually The more more well received they are Especially the chocolate ones Uh, So maybe we can swap some recipes Thomas Keep you happy Not for breakfast Chris at one o'clock, oh, at twelve, then not at eight or nine. <laughs> <laughs> oh, what I would you have him? What really in the Reedy Dureco, uh School of Good Diet and Habits and Hygiene? What would you have Thomas eat for breakfast? Okay, on Monday I'd put him on some oatmeal. <laughs> yeah, with some almonds and fruit and some plain yogurt. On right, Tuesday, okay. uh, whole wheat toast with some anchovy oh, and tomato. Yeah, okay. On Wednesday, boiled eggs. Two boiled eggs with some toast. Thursday, You've got to sit in all a confined brain. space in a studio with this guy, remember. I mean, careful. <laughs> Hope your air con's good. <laughs> okay, I'm not having this conversation with you anymore. <laughs> <laughs> all right, uh, Chris, we've got some questions from our listeners from last week. Uh, Charmaine wants right, to know, how are kidney stones formed? Okay, well, kidney stones are aggregates of material actually inside the kidney so you have two kidneys one on each side left and right and they're in your loin so if you find the bottom of your rib cage go about probably three quarters of a hand's length down from the bottom of your rib cage and then feel round to the back so your hands are resting on your loins that's roughly where the kidneys are round at the back and the kidney is kidney shaped and the outer rind of the kidney is what's called the cortex and in there are tubules where there are blood vessels and tubes that filter fluid from the blood and all of this drains into what's called the pelvis of the kidney which is the bit in the middle and that's where the collecting system unites and all of the little tubules that have made urine unite there and they flow into a structure called the ureter which is the muscular tube that carries the urine down to the bladder and because the fluid being made in the kidney can be very concentrated because the mm-hmm. kidney rescues back water to put back into the body, especially if you're dehydrated. It saves lots and lots of water and, and loses the minimum amount. You can get quite high concentrations of salt there. You can also get quite high concentrations of uh, other chemicals, including one called cysteine, which is an amino acid. And these chemicals, when they reach a threshold concentration, can begin to stick together. And 
in the same way that if I have a very concentrated solution of salt mm -hmm. in water, then I start to make little crystals, then once you've got one crystal started, a process called nucleation kicks in and it's much easier for a crystal that's already there, albeit in a tiny form, to get bigger than for um, a crystal to start in the first place. So once the process is started, it then grows quite quickly and you can get quite large stones forming there and if the stone stays put and doesn't obstruct the outflow then it can sometimes be completely benign but when bits start to come off you can get gravel passing down the ureter and this can scour the ureter on its way down it can also block the ureter temporarily and cause the muscle to go into sort of spasm and this is terrifically painful and another reason why some kidney stones form is because of infection mm -hmm. now if you have a kidney which is not which is, has an abnormal anatomy, and the, na the anatomy may be abnormal because of scarring, it may be abnormal because of the way the kidney developed as a baby, because some people have kidneys that are funny shapes inside. And this can alter the way in which the urine flows, and in both cases, if you have abnormal urine flow, you can become more prone to getting infections. Mm -hmm. And there's one infection, one bacterium called Proteus mirabilis, and this particular bacterium encodes an enzyme called a urease which can break down urea in urine and when it does so it can change the pH of the urine and the pH being how acid or alkaline it is mm -hmm. and it can shift the pH so that the formation of stones becomes much more likely. So there's a whole range of reasons why you get kidney stones, abnormal structure, too little water passing through or if you've got some kind of infection and getting them checked uh, and having the urine checked to see which of those it is is important and then treating them is in many cases they pass if they're very small in other cases you have to treat the infection and then get rid of the stone and it can be broken up by ultrasound waves uh, lithography that's known ultrasound lithography um, and in certain cases you also have to go in surgically and get the stone out and if you have a really big one it's called a staghorn calculus mm. because it looks like a pair of antlers that you have on a deer thankfully not as big though Phew, thank goodness for that let's go to uh, Shoshamine there's your answer thank you very much for the SMS let's go to um, Thomas Thomas in uh, Ilardas Park in Cape Town good morning Good morning to you. It's relating to jet lag. Which is the best way to fly to minimize jet lag, east or west? Uh, follow the sun or go the opposite direction? I'll listen on the radio. <laughs> That's oh, hello, Thomas. Um, I don't think there's an, an easy answer. I think some people are, find it easier than others. Some people are just very prone to getting the symptoms. For my part, I find coming uh, east is far worse than going west. So in other words, when you lose time, I find that far harder than when you get the time back going the other way. Mm -hmm. um, someone did a study a couple of years ago and they found that Viagra, uh, the anti-impotence agent, is actually quite good, at least in hamsters, at preventing jet lag in one mm -hmm. direction. Um, the reason being that it seems to affect the way your hypothalamus, where your body clock uh, works, uh, where, your, where your body clock is, how that works. Um, although I don't think anyone knows exactly what the effect is. So I don't think there's a simple answer of saying it's easier to go this way, this way than this way. Um, we, we, whenever we disrupt the body clock, we feel pretty ill. And as a result, you're going to have to make up the sleep def deficit that arises whatever. So I, I don't think there's an easy answer. Sorry, Thomas. Don't fly anywhere. That's the answer. Let's go to Jane in Wendywood. Hi. Hi. Um, I just wanted to ask like a scientist, if, if you're on diabetic medicine, could you turn it around and with diet and exercise and then go off your medication? Okay. 
Hello, Jane. Um, well, first and foremost, uh, obviously, never stop anything that a doctor has put you on without talking to the doctor first, because there could be health consequences. There are two forms or flavours of diabetes, type 1 diabetes and type 2 diabetes. Type 1 diabetes is generally called juvenile onset diabetes, although it's not exclusively encountered in young people, and this is where there is an absolute deficit of the ability of the body to make insulin. There is no insulin in the body, and this is why people who have this generally have to inject insulin in order to make up for the shortfall. In people who have type 2 diabetes, the pancreas often makes more insulin than a normal person, but for some reason, the body becomes deaf to the insulin signal, so that's why they need more insulin. And the drugs that you take initially, things like sulfonylurea drugs, they actually augment the production of insulin from the pancreas. So in other words, you overcome this relative deafness of the body's tissues by just making the pancreas work a bit harder. The reason the pancreas has to work so hard in the first place and why the body's tissues become deaf to insulin seems to be because of a syndrome called insulin resistance, which appears to be a consequence of gaining too much weight in one instance. So people who become too large, not everyone, and this isn't the case exclusively, but in many cases people who put on too much weight become resistant to their own insulin. And if you reverse that weight gain and get your weight down again, in some cases some diabetics are able to stop taking the treatment and they go back to being relatively normal because the weight loss makes them more sensitive to their own insulin again and so they don't need the drugs. But again, you must absolutely make sure that this is monitored um, by a diabetic specialist because running too high a blood sugar is very, very bad for your tissues because it can cause damage to blood vessels, it can cause damage to kidneys and it can cause damage to the eye. And so it's really important to keep an eye on the blood sugar level and keep it under control um, because otherwise those end organs can be irreversibly harmed. Mm. And Chris, I don't know if you remember Lynette who phoned last week asking about the efficacy of neurofeedback on treating ADD. Were you able to help us along with that? Uh, yes, I took a look at this and... Um, a fairly recent study was one by a guy in Missouri in America called Guy McCormack. Um, what the idea of neurofeedback is for these conditions is that when people have looked at people with things like attention deficits and Alz um, Alzheimer's, Asperger's and autism type disorders in brain scanners, what they find is that they seem to be a consequence of abnormal connectivity in the brain. So the brain has a whole range of different regions that do different jobs and they're wired together. And we know what the normal wiring of the brain is and we know roughly how much each area of the brain ought to talk to another area. But in people who have things like autism, there appear to be abnormal levels of connections between these brain areas. Some areas talk to each other too much, other areas don't talk to each other enough. So what they did in their study was to put individuals with these conditions in, in a brain scanner and get them doing a task. Usually it's something like playing a computer game and the computer game flies a rocket, let's say, across a landscape and the rocket moves and the game goes well when the person changes the connectivity of their brain in a way that makes it more normal and if they lose their focus and they begin to behave as though they're more abnormal again, then the rocket slows down. So it's a way of helping them by giving them feedback of the way their brain is working, which the computer is analysing, of helping the person to train their brain to connect itself up or to talk to each region in itself in a way that more normally resembles a normal brain than 
their normal brain for them, the abnormal brain. So in other words, it's a sort of visual readout of what's going on inside your head in order to help people to think along the right lines, to make a corny joke of it. But it does mm. appear to be quite effective. Okay, thank you very much, Lynette, uh, for that question. And very, very uh, uh, vigilant, Chris, because I must confess that I had forgotten about that and she phoned us just now uh, to inquire whether or not you'd found the answer. I love Phew. that level of interest. <laughs> Thanks, Lynette. <laughs> <laughs> I was just sitting here praying, Chris, that you'd done your homework because I would have hated to say to her, sorry, we'll try next week. All part of the service. Mm-hmm, thank you. Let's go to Pamela in Centurion. Hi there. Hello, Pamela. Okay, I'm going to try again. Pamela, hi. All right, Pamela's not there. Here's an SMS uh, question for you, Chris. Why do people get panic attacks? Is it curable? It's a very depressing disorder. It's an SMS, Chris. It's very common. Um, I'm not sure exactly how many people suffer with anxiety disorders, um, but it's a very large amount, certainly more than about 1% to 2% of the population. And the reason it happens isn't entirely clear, but it is tied up with depression. So some people who get depressed also suffer with anxiety, but then there are some people who are not depressed, but they then develop anxiety. Um, it sounds a bit trivial, doesn't it? Oh, I'm mm. anxious. But actually, for people who suffer from it, it's really debilitating. And what tends to happen is that a person will feel okay one minute, but then all of a sudden this paroxysm of overwhelming anxiety will come over them and they will feel like their heartbeats become very high and their hearts thudding away in their chest um this sensation of sort of overwhelming doom and gloom mm. completely overrides attention and the person often begins to think what's the point of my life uh, or i'm you know i'm terribly useless um i i feel like i'm not achieving anything mm. and uh if i carry on like this i'll be dead anyway and then all these negative thoughts creep in and then usually people then concentrate on the physical symptoms they're having they're quite shaky their heart's beating too fast and then they feel lightheaded and dizzy and then they convince themselves that they're having some kind of awful health problem such as a heart attack and they, they're going to die and actually what's happening is that they've got a bit wound up because they were a bit wound up, they've produced lots of adrenaline from their adrenal glands above the kidneys. Adrenaline is the body's fight or flight hormone, so it gears you up for action. Sure. And it puts your heart rate up, it puts your respiratory rate up, it makes you become a little bit twitchy, and it puts you on high alert. When you're in that situation, um, it makes all those symptoms happen, and the person then starts breathing too fast, and this makes them feel a bit dizzy because they breathe out lots of CO2 and their blood becomes a bit alkaline, and then they focus on those symptoms, think that there's something awful, and that makes more adrenaline come out, and so you then go round in a positive feedback loop with the symptoms getting more and more acute, and this is an anxiety or panic attack. And the way in which you can break this cycle is, where if it's, is if when someone has one, you say to yourself, I know what this is, it's just me making myself panic, and there's just too much adrenaline going around in my bloodstream. And if I just ignore it, and I just tell myself, these symptoms aren't real, it's just me making this happen, and if I just forget about it, it will go away. And just as the neurofeedback helps the people with things like ADD to get the cells thinking along the right lines, you untrain yourself into panicking. Because mm. people are very good at learning to do things, and people who have panic attacks have learned to panic very well. <laughs> so uh, you have to just unlearn the panic behaviour. And it's a bit like someone says, if, if you think to yourself, I must not panic, I must not panic, it's a bit like saying to someone who's clinging to a rock face, don't look down. <laughs> <laughs> they always do. And if I say to you, don't think about 
purple kangaroos, the first thing you see hopping through your mind's eye is kangaroos. So if you say to yourself, I must not panic, I must not panic, mm. you're actually going to make it worse. It's better to, to face it head on and say, I know why this is happening, there's too much adrenaline in my system, I will sit down, I will not keep taking lots of deep breaths because that's making it worse, yeah. it, and then it'll go away. And it does take a few weeks, but you can slowly learn yourself out of the problem. Panic. You know, Chris, I didn't believe in this whole panic attack thing until I met a runner who was going for a silver medal at the Comrades Marathon, which is at 89.9 uh, kilometers. I mean, a silver is running the uh, the, mar the ultra marathon, I think, in, in less than eight hours or less than seven. I'll get my facts. Uh, it's seven or eight. And he bailed out of the race. He was well within uh, the uh, time and the silver medal was within his reach, but he bailed because he, he just started panicking. And it was not towards the finish, but I think there were there, there was 30 kilometers to go, which is close to the finish uh, line, and he just bailed because he panicked. I've been sitting in exams, um, and I think the last exam I took, I sat there, turned the paper over, and it was so hard that I thought, this is awful. <laughs> and, <laughs> and I sort of sat there for a minute, and there's only six of us doing this exam because it was a higher-level medical exam, and I thought, shall I just stand up and go home? And, and I was literally on the verge thinking, this is awful, I think I'll just stand up and go home. And it was just <laughs> purely lack of self-control on my part. And once I sat down and thought about it, yeah. it wasn't that bad. And I passed the exam, um, and I could do it. But it's very easy to let your own fear of what you're frightened of overwhelm you yes. and then you end up being frightened of what you know you don't know rather than what you really don't know and it's the same with anything where you get a stressor something that you're worried about and you know what all your weaknesses are but the person you're up against doesn't and mm. the world doesn't and you focus on your own internal insecurities and then amplify them out of all proportion and that's what these panic disorders are but it is as i say possible to unlearn that behavior and and people as soon as they uh, as soon as they learn the trick as soon as they make the breakthrough it gets better very very quickly that's a relief pamela in centurion we tried you earlier let's try again uh, hello pamela can you hi, hear me really? hi there that's better welcome Hi, sorry, really. Uh, I, I pressed the wrong button on my phone. It's fine, so it's fine. Thanks for texting me again. Okay. Um, I really love the show. I think it's so cool. Thank okay. you. My question is, why are babies, when they're just born, why do they have these dark, greenish, blackish type of marks on their back side and on their back and on their legs? But it seems to fade over time. Yeah, I've seen that, like the birthmark, the greenish, blackish uh, mark yeah. on the bum, on the tiny bums. Chris, any explanation for that? Hello, Pamela. I think I know what you mean, and I can't think of what the overall reason for this is. So I may have to, having subjected you to having to phone back <laughs> uh, after your phone trauma, I may have to go and check it. But um, I think it might just be that when babies are developing, the pigmentation sometimes in certain areas doesn't develop all at the same rate, and you get... Uh, areas which are slightly different pi different pigmentation patterns and it's all to do with the developmental process but if i may just as i did um for lynette i'd like to take this away as homework and check uh what the reason for funny pigmentation patterns is in some babies if that's okay all right pamela we'll answer that question next week okay darling okay bye-bye that's pamela and centurion harold in glen hazel hi hi morning to you mm. uh i've got uh the mild diabetes and i take a lot of uh, sweetener and the sweetener contains aspartame. Now, I've read a long report, about 10 pages, where they say it's very dangerous, and the only reason why it's not banned is because there's so much money involved in the commercial world on the sweetener. Okay. Is it dangerous or isn't it? Aspartame. 
Yes. So aspartame is two amino acid molecules. I think they're alanines. Um, it might be al- I think they're alanines. Um, and they are joined together by a methyl group, which is a carbon atom with two hydrogen atoms stuck on either side of it, because carbon makes four bonds. When it goes into the stomach, the link between that methyl group and the two amino acid groups is broken, and the methyl group becomes a methanol. In other words, wood alcohol. Poisonous. But the amount is absolutely tiny, and the likelihood is there's probably more ethanol, sorry, there's probably more methanol wood alcohol in a normal glass of whiskey than you'll probably ever get from the sweetener. So it's probably not a a risk to health in terms of the methanol that you get from it, but there is a perceived threat. The only other ingredient in there is this amino acid, which is so common and ubiquitous in the environment. It's in everything we eat. Um, It's one of the building blocks of all the proteins in your body. So I don't think people are worried that there's any evidence Mm. that it's really seriously bad, but that doesn't replace good quality epidemiology. And as we go through time, people are collecting data and trying to look for these kinds of associations. What I will say is that whenever any new product is put on the market, it has to go through excruciatingly rigorous testing. And there will always be people who are concerned and raise concerns, and so they should. But that's no replacement for real hard evidence. And I don't think at the moment there is any really hard evidence that these sweeteners are unsafe. Um, But we have to wait and see. So, Chris, what are you saying? That we should quit whiskey, please? No, no, absolutely not. <laughs> I'm using whiskey as, oh, the, I've, I've, as the benchmark, the gold standard. That, I'm uh, so that relieved. If this is okay, then the sweeteners probably are going to do you no harm either. I'm so relieved. I wanted you to account for that very dangerous statement. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, the bottom line is that if, you are, if you've got diabetes and you're carrying too much weight mm. and you can reduce your health risk by getting your weight down a bit, because you're not using sugar and not making your diabetes worse, this is probably far better for your health than the mild, if any, disbenefit of using the sweetener. Absolutely. Well, Chris, we always love chatting to you, and we'll see you again next week. Thanks for having me. Have a great week, and see you next time. Ta-da. And that's it, folks. We're going to podcast that conversation, and all your SMSs, uh, we've done our best today to answer those left over from last week. We'll try again. We aim to please.